0: So now I'm going to read today's text. We're going to start in Acts 14, verse 1, and read through verse 18. Here at the Shore Harvest Church, we know that the Bible is the only infallible rule for faith and for practice. We know that if we want to understand how God's word goes forth, how it conquers this earth, how it conquers our fears, then we have to know this book. So I invite you now to hear the word of Almighty God. Now at Iconium, they entered together into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. And the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So they remained for a long time speaking boldly for the Lord, who bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands." But the people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. When an attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to mistreat them and to stone them, they learned of it and fled to Lystra and Derbe, uh, cities of the Lyconia, and to the uh, surrounding country. And there they continued to preach the gospel. Now, at Lystra, there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. Barnabas, they called Zeus and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd, crying out, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you. Even with these words, they scarcely restrain the people from offering sacrifice to them. This is the word of God. Praise be to God. Let's pray. Lord, recognizing that this is your word, we come to you and ask for your explanation of it. We ask you to make it known to us. We ask you to reveal your message to us. We ask you to uh, strengthen and encourage us through it. We ask you to make yourself known, to comfort us, to draw us to you, to weave us into your family even more tightly through this, your word. Let it be for us today, a lap unto our feet. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. You've certainly heard the adage, don't shoot the messenger don't shoot the messenger it's simple the idea is that the the messenger is not to blame for the message the messenger is independent of the message he he brings the one of the earliest references to this phrase uh, is found in a a, a, a Roman historian plute it's called uh, the, the title is called Plutarch's lives um, this uh, uh, was written uh, uh, early in the first uh, century um, uh, uh, A.D., and Plutarch is, is referencing a, a uh, Armenian king who lived, uh, I think it was around 50 B.C., and a messenger comes to him and says that the Roman armies are marching out of Italy across the, uh, the Balkans and are headed toward their nation of Armenia uh, and, and coming upon them. And the king, not wanting to hear this, executes the messenger. And so what ends up happening? Well, it ends up happening that nobody wants to bring the king any more bad news. They don't want to lose their head. And so the the armies of Rome march unrestrained, unresisted, toward the kingdom over which this man was responsible, simply because he shot the messenger. We must always be willing to make that distinction between the message and the messenger, But we see in the text today those who could not do so, those who could not distinguish between message and messenger. You know, it was interesting. I I, I didn't quite finish out my summary of what we had done so far. We saw in Acts 13, when Paul was was in Antioch, uh, Pisidia, we saw how he preached the gospel. And I want to review that because in Acts 14, Luke doesn't really tell us much about the nature of his preaching. He simply says he preached in such a way that many believed, but does not go into it. For Luke's point in chapter 14 is something else. So a quick review. In Acts 13, Paul had said to them that, that God was in control of all of history, that history was his story. That God had worked throughout the history of the Jews, and Paul focuses on the history of the Jews, to bring about the Jewish Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth. And then he says, but this Jesus of Nazareth, though he is the Jewish Messiah, is not for Jews alone. And he says to them, though it is our story that we have freedom and forgiveness, those of us who have believed in him, uh, Barnabas and the other disciples with me, we have freedom and forgiveness Because God worked through history to bring about Jesus. And then he challenges them. What is your story? Are you going to count yourself worthy of this? And he says if you reject Jesus, you have deemed yourself unworthy of eternal life. And of course the implication is that they will face eternal condemnation. And so we have that that reminder of the gospel message. That God is in control of all of history so that he can bring about Jesus, and that from that point, he is working all of history so that he could bring his own to the knowledge of Jesus, so that our story would be one of freedom and forgiveness. And he's bringing about history in such a way that that message continues to go forth so that others can have that same hope. And so we enter now into 14 with an understanding of how and what Paul and Barnabas have been preaching There in uh, uh, verse 1, we see gospel acceptance. Now, it's not often that we're going to make a a, a point in a sermon of just one verse, and yet I don't want us to miss this. Because it's easy to look at Acts 14 and see it largely as as an account of the rejection of the gospel. And yet it's really not. And in fact, there in verse 1, how does Luke say it there? Uh, uh, they entered together into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. The gospel message was successful here as it had been in Antioch, Pisidia. We must understand that, that when the word of God is faithfully proclaimed, it will take root it will have success. Oh, it won't always be uh, uh, quite as explosive and as rapid as what we see in some of these accounts in Acts, but it will have success. We cannot look at Acts 14 as an account of the failure of the gospel. For Luke says very plainly that a great many came to know the Lord. A great many believed in the preaching that Paul and Barnabas brought. They preached in such a way, we're not given the details, but their message was faithful to the gospel. It was faithful to the word of God. Whether or not it mirrored what they had said in Antioch, Pisidia, we don't know for certain. But it was a faithful message that the Lord used so that many would believe. There was gospel success. There was gospel acceptance. So if there was success there, and if a great many believed, then why is the bulk of chapter 14 give attention to the rejection of the gospel? And I think it's so that Luke can draw our attention to the different ways the gospel is rejected, the different reasons it's rejected. Oh, some of them are going to be self-evident. There's a certain amount of rejection that seems clear and obvious. But there is a rejection that is not so obvious. And so having kind of considered the the review and the introduction uh, uh, into Acts, and having looked at the gospel acceptance in verse 1, we're going to spend the bulk of our sermon here at what is now point 3 in the sermon outline. But notice it has two subheadings. And these really are the two main points of our sermon. I want us to consider rejection through rejection and rejection through reverence. Rejection through rejection and rejection through reverence. Let's consider first rejection through rejection, looking at verses 2 through 7. And we see there what is the very normal way or a very normal way that the gospel is rejected. Verse two, but the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. If you've had some training in formal logic, you may recognize this as what's known as the ad hominem argument against the man, against the person. An attack not on the argument. They don't attack the the, the message of the gospel. They attack Paul and Barnabas. They poison the minds against the The brothers, not against the message. And we must be reminded that this is a common way that assaults come. We see this all the time, by the way. This is a routine technique in politics, right? You don't like what your opponent on the campaign trail says or or what they've got uh, their proposal for how to solve a certain problem. One way is to offer an alternative solution But what's becoming increasingly the more common response is, oh, they're an idiot. You know, they don't know anything. They have failed in this way, that way, and the other way. And therefore, we should ignore them. It's an attack on the person and not on what they said. That's what we see going on here. And that's what you and I must be prepared to accept. But what happens? Do Paul and Barnabas leave? Do they beat a path out of town because they were personally attacked? Well, the next verse, verse 3, says, no, they don't. And what does it say? They remain for a long time speaking boldly for the Lord. They are personally attacked, personally insulted, personally defamed, personally accused. And they say, we don't care. They echo in their actions, the words of John the Baptist. He must become greater and I must become less. And they stay and preach the word. If something interesting happens, there's a really some interesting wording there in verse three. Did you catch it? Uh, 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 speaking boldly for the Lord who bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. It's if we read that too quickly, we might think it's Paul and Barnabas who are bearing witness, but it's not. It's the Lord intervening to bear witness, and He grants them the power of miracles. Uh, uh, we're going to consider. We're going to come back and consider that more carefully uh, uh, down when uh, later in the text where we actually see a miracle performed. But it is an interesting reminder that the function of miracles has always been. God's stamp of validation upon his messengers. When his message goes forth through his messengers, especially in some new way, that he has always validated them through signs and wonders. And that's what we see happening here. Then in verse 4, in verse 5, we see uh, something interesting. But the people of the city were divided. You know, it's interesting. In Luke 12, Jesus says this, Do you think I have come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. For from now on, in one house, there will be five divided, three against two and two against three. They will be divided, father against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, mother mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. You know, Christmas time, we are fond of quoting the, the peace on earth refrain. And it foretold the peace that will one day come as a result of Jesus' work. But Jesus reminds us that in the, uh, in the intervening time, the gospel brings something far from peace. It brings disruption and division. And we see that here. This city is divided over the gospel. And then we see in in verse 5 how the gospel unites. Now I'm going to stop there for a moment. We know, as believers, from studying other parts of the New Testament, we know the gospel is supposed to unite us. It's supposed to unite Jew and Gentile in the body of Christ, free and slave in the body of Christ, the powerful and the weak. The rich and the poor, male and female, are to be brought together and united in the body of Christ. But we also must be reminded that the gospel unites its enemies. There is an old saying that nothing unites quite like a common enemy. And we see something astounding there in verse 5, For we see Jew and Gentile working together to oppose the messengers of the gospel, to oppose Paul and Barnabas. This is an astounding thing in that culture, for Jews pretty much stuck to themselves and only interacted with Gentiles so long as they had to in the business world. And for the most part, the Gentiles, particularly in this region and culture, were particularly fond of the Jews, for the Jews claimed that there was only one God and they reviled all the multiple gods of the Gentiles. So these are two groups that did not interact. They did not do things together, and yet here they are united in their opposition to the gospel. We must be prepared for this. We must never think that someone is going to unite with us unless they are united to us in the gospel. They're not going to be a friend of the church if they're not Loved by and lovers of Jesus. For the gospel unites people against itself. It brings together those who would otherwise not work together in opposition to the gospel. Never, never, never be fooled into thinking that those who are outside of the body of Christ will somehow partner with us or work with us oh they may give lip service to that but ultimately what does jesus say there are those who are with us and there are those who against us who are against us and that's it he divides humanity into those two groups now in verse 6 we see uh, paul and barnabas's response Having heard about the plot to kill them, how the Jews and the Gentiles in town have come together to, to uh, uh, apprehend them and stone them, Paul and Barnabas beat it out of town. And that's a little interesting little thing to think about. We're, we're not going to develop it fully. This isn't an ethics lesson. But there's a, it's, it's a difficult thing to know when we should face danger for the sake of the gospel and when we shouldn't. We sometimes forget that it's not a clear-cut either-or situation. There are times and places where, yes, we should go into the dangerous situation to take the word of God to those who need it. But there are other times where we must preserve our lives. And one of the things we need to do is recognize the wisdom of consultation with others. How do we wrestle with this together? Give me wisdom that I may not have on my own. Together, let's think through what risk is worth taking and what risk is not. And these two get out of town to save their lives. But in verse 7, it tells us they continue to preach the gospel. It's a new location, but not a new message. It's a new place, but not a new mission. And they continue to preach the gospel. You know, we need to recognize from these verses that many of us will be rejected by being rejected. The message, the rejection of the message will be accompanied with the rejection of the messenger. That this is going to be a commonplace thing. That we are going to take the message of the gospel to those who make no profession of faith, who do not confess faith, and we're going to share it with them, and they're going to reject us because they reject the message. And sometimes in our lives, we're going to uh, approach those who make a profession of faith, who confess faith in Jesus, and approach them with the gospel, the, the, the impacts, the implications of the gospel. And sometimes that's not going to be well-received. And sometimes that's going to be met with a personal rejection as well. A call to the gospel can be rejected by rejecting the messenger. And you and I have to be prepared for that. We have to accept that that is one of the crosses we bear as Jesus' followers. Now, it's interesting uh, uh Jesus was casting out demons, and his enemies came and, and, and said, it is only by Beelzebul that he cast out demons. And at another time, Jesus, teaching his followers, says, if they have called the master of the house Beelzebub, then surely they will also attack you. Surely they will malign the members of my household. And we must not think for a moment, that the gospel message is going to endear us to the lost i've shared this before a pastor of mine many years ago reminded me there is never a time when sinners like to be told they're sinners and so we're reminded of that here the gospel will have its success we see that in verse one a great many believed but gospel rejection will include rejection of the messenger. The rejection of the message will be the rejection of the messenger. Rejection through rejection. But that's actually relatively easy to see. Oh, it might hurt, we might need to prepare and brace ourselves for it, but we tend to notice it. What happens next in the text reveals a far more dangerous rejection. If the first part is rejection through rejection, this next section is rejection through reference. Far from rejecting Paul and Barnabas, they exalt Paul and Barnabas, and yet have rejected the message of the gospel. So we see in verses 8 through 10 the account of the miracle. We read it earlier of the lame man, the man who was lame from birth, who had never walked, and he's watching Paul's sermon, and somehow he catches Paul's eye. It's interesting how the text notes it there, that Paul, just looking at him, could see that he had faith to be made well. This man is sitting there listening to the sermon. And something in him says, this can change my life. This can change my path. By the way, I will tell you as a pastor, that is a blessed moment. When you are preaching or teaching and you see it connecting with people. and You see them affected by God's word. You're humble that God has chosen to make you his instrument and vehicle by which that could happen. What a great moment in Paul's ministry. Paul turns to the man and tells him to stand up, to walk. And the man is able to walk. Not only has he never walked because his legs are lame, but he's never learned how to walk. He hasn't gone through all the baby step processes that we most go through, most of us have to go through. And he just gets up and starts walking, instantly able to do what he's told to do. You know, we're reminded here at this point, and we saw in verse 3, that miracles are God's bearing witness validating his messengers. We must never lose sight of that. We must not necessarily long for the miraculous today, but rather long for the message that it validates. Throughout the scriptures, we see this. When Moses stands at the burning bush and says, they're not going to believe me, God. I can go. I can tell them everything you've told me to tell them. But they're not going to believe me. And God grants to Moses signs and wonders. He says to Moses, what is in your hand? A staff. Take the staff. Throw it down. And it becomes a snake. He says, grab it by the tail and pick it up, and it becomes a staff again. And he says, with that and with many other signs and wonders, I will bear witness to you when you go to Pharaoh and when you go to my people. Don't worry about whether or not they're going to believe you. I'm going to bear witness to you that you are my messenger. Throughout history, as you study miracles in the Bible, we see this connection. We tend to think that miracles are just occurring all the time throughout the last you know, 8, 10, 12,000 years of human history. It's really not the way it's laid out in Scripture. Miracles are largely clustered around three times in history. When Moses comes and brings a new revelation from God, he says, "Listen, the God who has set you free has now some vans for you. He has some expectations of you. And Moses brings the law, and God validates him. And then Elijah comes. And Elijah, some, what, about 700 years or so later than Moses, Elijah comes along and says, you have failed in doing what Moses required of you. What God revealed through Moses, you have failed. And Elijah becomes this, the, 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 the head of a new line of prophets. There had been prophecy before, but with Elijah, it takes a new turn. God's prosecuting attorneys now. The prophets become those who pronounce God's judgment on the people and say to them, you have not met his requirements. And God validates Elijah through miracles. And then Jesus comes. And it's interesting that he would be on the Mount of Transfiguration with what two men? Moses and Elijah. So that Jesus comes and says, yes, Moses gave you the law. He told you how God expected you to live in light of the freedom you'd been granted. And Elijah came and told you, you have failed in this regard. And I come to tell you, now there is a way. Now there is forgiveness. Now there is a path made open by which I keep the law on your behalf. Oh, you still need to make an effort to keep it, but you cannot expect your effort to amount to anything. I come and I fulfill it before you. I keep Moses so that the judgment of Elijah can be overturned so that you can come to God. And Jesus' new message is radical and God must validate it with miracles as well so that we will recognize that he comes from God. It's interesting also that in each case there is a follower it's as if to say that the, the the message doesn't stop with this one person. So that Moses parts the Red Sea. Moses holds up his arm so that the battle is won. And then his successor Joshua comes along and parts the Jordan River and stops the sun so that the battle is won. And there's the parallel miracles between these two to say this. That all those who follow in the footsteps of Moses, all those who bring the law of God to us. Oh, not a new law. Joshua didn't offer new revelation. He just continued to bring the revelation that had been given to Moses. And God validates him. And it's as if God is saying, all those who walk in the way of Moses receive my same validation. Come with the same authority. Bear the same uh, uh, right of uh, of a uh, right of authority to pronounce my law to you and then Elijah having pronounced God's judgment on the people, he's followed by elisha. so Elijah he he what, he raises the widow's son he defeats miraculously defeats an army. What does Elisha come along and do? He raises a widow's uh, son from death and miraculously defeats an army. So that, and he continues in the ministry of Elijah, pronouncing God's judgment on those who have failed to keep the law of Moses. And it's as if God is saying all those who continue in that, who continue to proclaim God's judgment on those who cannot keep his word, have that same stamp of approval. And then Jesus comes, and he heals the blind, and he raises children from the dead. And he makes the lame to walk. And Peter heals the blind and raises a child from the dead and makes the lame to walk. And Paul uh, heals the blind and raises a child from the dead and makes the, blind, uh, makes the lame to walk. And it is this to say, those who continue in the teaching and the ministry of Jesus and the apostles continue to receive that validation. There is the new revelation from God, validated by God's miracles, and then there is that next generation validated to show that it continues. There is new revelation from God in the form of judgment um, coming through Elijah, and and validated by miracles, and then the next generation receives that same validation to show that it's not a one-time event, it's a continuum, it's a continuous thing. And then Jesus comes and miracles are given to him to validate him, and the apostles come and have those same miracles so that we know that message continues in time. So that all those who come with the apostolic message of salvation by grace through faith in Jesus, all who bring that message to us, bear the stamp of God's approval, just as they did. So we come back to our miracle here in this text. So Paul works this miracle in that that, uh, congregation where he was uh, preaching, and the man gets up, um, and he is healed. And what happens in verse 11 through 13? The people's response, what do we see there? Well, first of all, let's note the language issue, um, because that's going to be important. It's going to come back and get us if we're not careful. And when the the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in Lyconian, Um, The implication being, and we're going to see in a moment, Paul and Barnabas don't speak that local language. One of the things you you may not know is that uh, in in the Roman world of that time, uh, uh, largely in the eastern half of the Roman Empire, the lingua franca, the, the universal language, was Greek. In the western half, it was Latin. And so pretty much everywhere Paul, Barnabas, and future missionary endeavors went, as a general rule, they spoke Greek. Because that language was known by almost everybody. But a lot of us who are, I included myself, I'm not bilingual, but a lot of people who are bilingual they express this, that, that they can converse in the two languages. But when excitement comes, when, when it, the thoughts are coming faster than they can keep up with, they're going to default back to their mother tongue. And we see that going on here. They're so excited about the miracle that's been worked that they they fall back into their Lyconium, uh, Lyconian, and they're speaking that, and Paul and Barnabas don't know what is being said. And what is being said is this, that these two men are gods, that Paul and Barnabas are gods. They're not just from the gods, they're certainly not from one god, but they are themselves gods. We might understand this a little bit better with a little understanding of the local history of that region. You see, in this uh, uh, town, in uh, uh, Lystra, um, there was a legend, and and we know this legend from a Roman historian, uh, Ovid. He writes in uh, 8 AD, and he tells us about a local legend where Zeus and Hermes had at, Sometime in the past, lost to history, Zeus and Hermes had come to visit Lystra, and they had gone from house to house. And after visiting 1,000 houses, it was at the last house, that 1,000th house, that an elderly couple, they were going looking for shelter. They were saying, we are visitors here. We need a place to stay. And everyone had turned them away, so the legend goes. And that last couple invited them in and gave them A room to sleep in. And supposedly Zeus and Hermes were so angry at the people of Lystra that they devastated the entire city, flooded it so that everyone, every home, every business was destroyed except for the home of this one elderly couple. And apparently the Lystrians, I'm not sure if that's the right term for them, but uh, those in Lystra lived in fear of this ever happening again. And so when they see this miracle, they recognize this is something done by a power beyond themselves. This is no mere human power. And so they attribute it rightly to deity, but to the wrong deities. And more than that, they actually believe that Paul and Barnabas are those deities. And the text tells us plainly that they assigned Paul to be Hermes. Hermes, in case you've forgotten, is the uh, the messenger god. Uh, he's uh, the, the one with the uh, the wings on his uh, feet. Um, you see that symbol used for carrying messengers around. And he was the principal preacher, and principal speaker. And so he is Hermes. The text tells us many scholars have speculated that the reason they assigned Zeus to Barnabas was probably Barnabas was older. And he was older, wiser, he was deemed to be Zeus. And so the people are going to offer sacrifice. Well, that's what you do if a God comes among you, right? You offer a sacrifice. And they run, they get the priest from the local temple, and they're going, and he, he brings the oxen. And they're pulling him through the streets, and a big crowd is forming, and he's getting ready. And, and Paul and Barnabas are standing there and going, oh, what is going on? What is happening? Why is this guy toting oxen? And all of a sudden, they see the, the uh-uh, ceremonial knives for slaying the oxen come out. They see the ceremonial buckets for capturing the blood. They recognize that a pagan ritual is about to take place, that, that animals are about to be sacrificed. And I don't know in that moment if they realize yet that they're going to be sacrificed to them. Maybe they, they think the message has taken hold and people are making a wrong sacrifice to God. There needs to be no sacrifice now that Jesus has been sacrificed. But one way or another, they turn to somebody and say, what is going on? And now it's explained to them in a language they understand. We see that in verse 14. The people's response was to, to extol and exalt and revere the messengers. They have failed. To revere the message. The message undoubtedly. We know Paul and Barnabas well enough to know. Their message was about Jesus. But rather than believing in Jesus. And repenting to Jesus. And holding on to Jesus. These people are going to revere. And extol. And sacrifice. To Paul and Barnabas. And learning that in verse 14. Paul and Barnabas. Intervene. And they 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 holler over top of the commotion, they get enough, enough attention that they jump up on something high they can be seen, and they, they fly and they bring it to a halt. And then they say to the people, You don't understand. First of all, in verse 15, they, they set the record straight. They set the record straight with regard to themselves. We are only humans like you, we're of the same nature as you. So right out of the gate, let's just understand this. Don't sacrifice to us. We're not gods. And then they turn to the message. You've missed the point. We didn't heal this boy so you would extol and, and, and exalt and revere us. The boy was healed so that you'd understand the message. We bring good news, Paul says there in verse 15. It's good news that you can turn to God. That there's a way to go to God. God. That's who healed this man. And that's who you need to turn to. And they continue. They've set the record straight with regard to who they are. They've set the record straight with regard to why the miracle occurred and the message that was brought. And then they set the record straight with regard to God. They say, listen, he's not left himself without a witness. There is a living and true God. Turn from these vain things. You've got the right idea that you need to worship God. Now you need to worship the right God. And you need to turn from your pagan ways. Many of us are going to face this challenge. In some ways, it will be obvious. I know of a missionary in India who said the chronic problem there is not getting the Hindus to accept Jesus. It's getting the Hindus to abandon the other 2.3 million gods. Adding one more god to their pantheon is No hurdle for them, excepting that he's the only God. That's the hurdle. Many of us face this in our own lives and in our ministry to those around us. Oh, yeah, I like the message of Jesus. Yes, I want that. And I'll add it on to the good works I'm going to do. Much of the New Testament rails against that view. The book of Galatians in particular says, don't think for one moment that your good works add anything to the work of Jesus. Oh, I'm going to follow the message of the Bible up until the point where I think it conflicts with science, and then I'm going to follow the God of science. That, too, is not what is being set forth here. Paul says you must abandon these vain gods, and you must receive the one true God. And then in verse 16, he points to God's common grace, it's laid out there, uh, uh, in the past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways. He didn't, he didn't wipe you off the earth just yet. He's not destroyed you despite the fact that you don't come to him rightly. He's let you live. And then in verse 17, he he points to the idea of general revelation. And he's made himself known. He did not leave himself without a witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven, and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. You know it's interesting, verse eighteen. There, I actually included verse eighteen as part of the previous point, under the people's response, because it comes back around and says they didn't believe the message. These people didn't accept the gospel. Oh, Paul and Barnabas were successful in stopping the sacrifice. But just barely. That was still the desire of these people. You know, we need to recognize that sometimes we're going to be rejected through rejection, but sometimes we're going to be rejected through uh, reverence. Sometimes we're going to be rejected by the way we're accepted. Not so much we are rejected, but our message. You know, it's an interesting thing, it's an interesting challenge as a pastor. Do the people like me, or do they love Jesus? Do they come because I I have a particular way about me, or do they come because of the Word of God? It's a challenge you face, Sunday school teacher. Do they love you and the fun things you do in class, or do they love Jesus? Oh, it's going to take time. They're young. Understand that it's still a process of developing. But are you moving them toward the love of Jesus? Small group leader. Do they come because they want to be with you in your home? Or do they come because they want to be among the body of Christ? Fathers, are you making sure that you are becoming less and Jesus is becoming more in your home? Do you demand that your children love you? Well, that's appropriate. The Bible calls us to that. But only in so far as you then point them to Jesus. It is a trap to be revered in this way. It is a great danger to be extolled and exalted in this way. It is... It is it feeds the ego, it, it nurtures the pride, and it is hard to resist. As a church, collectively, we must wrestle with this. If we make a decision to change this, that, or the other thing, insert whatever, music, order of service, the color of the carp, whatever we might do, Do we change it because we believe that it will better serve Jesus? Or do we change it because we hope the world will like us? When rejection comes through rejection, it hurts. And we must be prepared for it, but it's usually pretty easy to see. When rejection comes through reverence, it is hard to see. It's easy to miss. We can, like Paul and Barnabas, not recognize the language that's being used around us and let these things happen to us. And yet we will fail in our jobs. We will fail in our calling. We will have not brought people to Jesus. It is not better that, well, they should just be here. If they will come because we changed our music, well, then at they're least they're here and they like us. No, it's not better that they come and like us if that's all they ever do. I think it was Donald Barnhouse who said, what you're one through is what you're one to. What you're one through is what you're one to. If you were one through some Sunday school attendance program, you're going to tend to be all about gimmicks to get people in the door. If you were one through a youth basketball league, you're going to tend to be all about those things which serve things other than the spiritual center of humanity. If you were one through debating and arguing about doctrine and the word of God, all that comes off sounding more righteous. But it's still not about Jesus. We must not even be one through the to the word, lowercase w, of God, but we must be one to and through the word, uppercase w, of God. And when we win people with Jesus, we will win them to Jesus. Let us be sure that, like Paul and Barnabas, it's never about us. It's only ever about him. Lord, through this example, let us see the dangers that await us. As we go forward as a church, I ask that you would give wisdom to the leaders of the church, that we would do the right thing for the right reasons in the right way at the right time to serve the one true right God. Never so that we will be liked, never so that we will be revered and exalted. Brace us against the rejection that will be a personal attack and warn us against the rejection that will look like personal adoration. And help us to have the wisdom to put Jesus forward in both situations so that a great many will believe. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.